Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. As always, it's good to be with you today to facilitate our time in the Word. And I'm going to bring a bit of Luke to you, maybe not so strange. Um, but this week in our Luke Bible class, we studied Jesus calling Levi. You might know him as Matthew, the, the, one of the gospel authors. And his profession was a tax collector. Jesus called him to be one of his disciples right there at his tax booth. And we discussed that, we read that, and we also read the events that followed. So I'm going to retread that a little. And it's going to be different than Thursday, slightly. And then we're going to carry on from there. And we're going to go into Luke chapter 6. So please, if you have your Bibles with you, physical or digital, um, go to Luke chapter 5. as And we will be going from there. We're going to start from verse 27. So Luke 5, verse 27, I'll read to you the portion we read on Thursday, Luke 5, 27 to 39. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We just concluded the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man, uh, roof breaking and all. His friends broke the roof and lowered him into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus forgave his sins and healed him. And now it says there from Luke, 20, Luke 5 verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they, the, the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must not be put into fresh wine skins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. All right. So, unlike Thursday, I'm not going to spend too much time giving you a historical background of Levi himself, a profile of who Levi or the gospel author Matthew, as you know him, I'm not going to spend too much time there. I'm going to give you a very quick synopsis of what it meant to be a tax collector in Jesus' day. All the stigma and all the exclusion he endured, 
because of this profession that he is in. So quickly, all you need to know is that tax collectors were despised by their fellow Jews. They were hated and despised by them. They were treated as the lowest class of sinners. Socially, they were rejected. Politically, they were regarded as traitors, working for the oppressive Roman or Herodian hierarchy. Religiously, they were excommunicated as apostates. And rabbis even debated whether it was possible for a tax collector to experience true repentance. So that should give you a snapshot of what it means to enter into the profession of a tax collector in Jesus' day. These rabbis, like the Pharisees, ostracized people like Levi, believing that they are too far gone to deserve or receive God or even their own mercy and forgiveness. Jesus of Nazareth is a different rabbi, a different being altogether. He calls, he sits, and eats with those who other religious, religious leaders have rejected. Jesus, God incarnate, uses his authority and power, which has been in display all throughout chapter 5 and even before. He uses his power and authority to mercifully journey toward these societal outcasts. He reaches out and touches the untouchables, like the leper, forgiving, cleansing, and healing them in the process. Levi has never experienced anyone, never mind a rabbi, like this before. This is evident in how he responds in being found and called by Jesus. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Response. Okay? Inappropriate and appropriate response to the presence of Jesus. Look what Levi does. As we read, he permanently leaves his booth and tax profession to follow Jesus. Not only that, but he begins this new life partnering journey with a celebration. It said there, he made Jesus a great feast in his house. <laughs> so it's not just a feast, it's a great feast. And he invited all his tax collector buddies. Now maybe that's the only folk that would have had anything to do with Levi in the first place. Maybe that's the only people that dared to enter into his home because of the stigmatism and the societal exclusion that he experienced. But Levi openly receives and follows Jesus and he throws a feast in his honor and excitedly invites all his friends to meet Jesus. This is a banquet reception and it is central to the entire passage and indeed is the main object of the Pharisees disdain. There's two layers of this disdain. Firstly, that Jesus is even there in the first place, in the home of the lowest class sinner, eating and having fellowship with him and his conspirators. Secondly, that Jesus and his disciples are feasting at that. They're not just sitting there, they are feasting a great feast. Surely, they should be religiously fasting like the devout followers of John the Baptist and the Pharisees themselves, who boasted in how, how often and how frequently within a week that they would fast. Now, have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, why fasting? Is it a pious religious thing to do? Well, let's be fair on them too, right? Let's put ourselves in their shoes. Israel in Jesus' day was in a period of mournful waiting. They remained under foreign oppression, 
the Roman Empire, they remained in a spiritual exile. They may not be in a physical one, but they, they were surely were in a spiritual exile, longing for the arrival of God's kingdom and once again God's rescuing hand and redemption. Fasting as a community was the appropriate response in this period of waiting. N.T. Wright says, it was a way of looking back to the disasters that had befallen Israel and humbling oneself in repentance to pray for God's mercy. Okay, now enter Jesus' threefold illustration. And I say threefold on purpose. A threefold illustration and the parable that follows. And he shares these in response to the Pharisees' feasting, objection, and offense. It is critical, in my opinion, to include Jesus' response to the Pharisees' fasting claim, together with the how not to parable. And you need to see them as that. It's a how not to parable of patching a garment and of storing new wine. I believe, and this becomes clear in the text, that they say the same thing. And we're going to dig a little deeper today, and we're going to find out how they say the same thing. You see, if fasting in Jesus' day speaks of humbly waiting and longing for God's ultimate jubilee, then feasting speaks of the celebration in experiencing that jubilee presently. Let me repeat that again. If fasting in Jesus' day speaks of a humble waiting and longing for God's ultimate jubilee, feasting then speaks of its celebration in experiencing it presently. Jesus shares the image of a wedding feast which is a regular Jewish image for God's coming new age, and indeed for our own. Amen? With himself being compared to the honorary bridegroom. Wedding guests eat merrily and they partake in the joyous festivities, celebrating those who are being wed. They are witnessing a covenantal union of one to another, and they share in their host's delight of this momentous occasion. Feasting is the appropriate response for the wedding guests to partake in. I don't know how many weddings you've been at, but I'm sure all of them included some type of eating, whether a little or a lot. Fasting, however, speaks of a mourning, something more akin to belong to a funeral and or passing of a loved one. And all you need to think is the story of, of David and Israel when they mourned and fasted when Saul and Jonathan died right they entered a period of mournful fasting as a community jesus says when the bridegroom is taken away from them that is when they will fast when jesus is betrayed and taken to the cross and killed then they will fast in those days it's like jesus is saying in the current feasting my disciples are responding appropriately to my presence and the kingdom's arrival Yes, they will go on to mourn and fast appropriately too when I am taken away, but not yet. That time is not now. I am with them and we feast together. The bridegroom is here and now at the wedding. They are to receive and join him with feasting. To fast now for Levi, the tax collector gang, the disciples to fast now would be an inappropriate response in the bridegroom or Jesus' presence. 
Do you see the contrast of responses here? Inappropriate and appropriate responses to Jesus and his now revealing and unfolding kingdom. This is the focus. Now enter the parable pair of how not to. Right? Today we go to YouTube and we Google how to do a certain task. And they may show you what not to do. I've seen many of those videos. What not to do. This is what Jesus does. He gives an, a, a parable of how not to go about something. How not to patch a garment and how not to store new wine. These how not to's are similar to fasting at a wedding. The key word that Jesus that shows that Jesus is continuing his point as he enters the parable is also in the beginning of verse 36. It says he also told them a parable. Jesus hasn't changed his focus and he uses the parable as he so often does to illustrate and deepen his point. Indeed, in every synoptic gospel, this parable is found as part of the Jesus Levi feasting fellowship scene as well as the Pharisees' vehement objection of this. And in every of these synoptic gospel accounts, the parable starts with the phrase, no one, right? How not to? No one follows these illogical steps, irrational steps. You see, Jesus opens the parable exclaiming how irrational it would be to patch a garment without following the necessary steps. And, and the same way of pouring new wine into an unprepared or an old wineskin. Let me turn to Matthew's account. He was there. He was first party. It was in his home. If we follow Luke's account, he's got the gang around him of, the, of Jesus, his disciples and his colleagues. And he sees the Pharisees objecting and he witnesses first party Jesus's response. So let's use his gospel account now. So I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 9. You don't need to. I'll read it for you as it gives us a deeper look into Jesus's meaning and thought. And let's start with the cloth or the patch. Matthew 9 verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Notice Matthew describes the cloth as unshrunk. That's key. No one puts a piece of an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And this is found both in Matthew and Mark's account. And this tells us that a patch taken from a new garment or a new cloth needs to go through a certain process first. It needs to be shrunk or treated correctly first before sewing it and applying it to a torn garment. This new cloth needs to be prepared and treated. It needs to be shrunk. And here's the key. It needs to be put in a ready state to be used for patching. The patch's fibers need to have already shrunk, matching those of the destined garment. They are to be in sync. And when they are, they will continually be in sync, even when it's rain falls on them or they are washed thereafter. You see, it's already been shrunk. It's not unshrunk. It's been pre-shrunk. It is put in a ready state. Let's continue, as does Jesus and as does Matthew, in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 9. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, 
the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. The new wine needs to be placed in fresh or refreshed wineskins. And I'm sure Michael Weiss will give you more information on this if you ask him. It's a passionate name for him and you just need to ask him. New wine needs to be placed into fresh or refreshed wineskins. In other words, wineskins that are in a ready state, receptive to the fermentation process the new wine will go through. We know fresh wineskins are important because they are flexible, they are pliable, and they can easily expand as the fermentation process of the new wine takes place and carbon dioxide is released. I'm sure you are well familiar with this uh, context of the wineskins. But I wanted to show you the cloth and the wineskin and to see them together as the same point along with feasting. Because have you noticed there's a juxtaposition? There's an interesting story being told if you put the cloth and the wineskin together in the same parable. You see, the new cloth must become old before patching an older garment. It needs to be put in a ready state. It's unshrunk, it needs to be shrunk. It needs to be go through the necessary steps to ensure it will the fibers will match its destination garment. The new cloth must become old before patching an older garment. Interestingly, an old wineskin must become new before housing new wine. You see, it's all about following the appropriate steps to ensure the material used are in a ready state to effectively fulfill the purpose at hand. Be that patching a garment or storing new wine or feasting with your guests at a wedding. It's all about the appropriate receptivity. Some are in a ready state to receive the bridegroom and they appropriately feast with him. See, Levi being hated and rejected by his fellow Jews meant he was in a ready state to receive Jesus. He leaves everything, repents, follows, and feasts with him. The Pharisees, however, seem like the illogical no-ones that Jesus uses in the parable. They are unable to receive Jesus and display and his display of messianic mercy. You see, they are unshrunk. They are not refreshed. They are out of sync, rigid, inflexible, and of course, they burst at the sight of Jesus unfolding the kingdom before their very eyes. The Messiah they have been longing all along. The Messiah they have been fasting all along. They were not in a ready state to receive him. You see, Luke throughout his gospel, his gospel account, he specifically highlights these two contrasting heart categories. Those who are open, in a ready state, primed to receive Jesus and therefore do so appropriately, and those who are closed, not receptive to his ways, and ultimately rejecting him. Let's turn to Luke chapter 6 now. And please turn with me to Luke 6. And we're going to read from verse 20. You see, this is where Luke lifts these two categories to the surface for all to see through Jesus' words as he speaks, as we've come to know them as the Beatitudes. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, I'll read from 20 to 26 from the English Standard Version again. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wow, those are not easy words to hear. Jesus in a dramatic reversal proclaims that those who are presently, I don't know if you notice the now in every time we mention some of those statements. Jesus proclaims that those presently poor, hungry, mourning and hated are blessed. He calls them blessed. And he declares those who are presently full in riches, in appetites, in joy, in popularity, he declares woe upon them. Why? Why does Jesus seemingly flip the script? Why does he reverse our earthly logic? Just like feasting, shrinking, and stretching, like the parable before, it's all about being in a ready state of receptivity. I'm going to illustrate my point with a story of my own, a real life story and experience of mine. It also took place in a Bible study as we went through the gospel. A few years back now, I don't know if Petronella remembers, but um, as a local church, we embarked on a, a more actively living out the gospel as we studied the gospel of Matthew together. So almost exactly to the day in, in late May on a cold wintry Friday in Pinelands, Cape Town, we embarked on handing out hot bowls of soup and rolls to those less fortunate within the suburb surrounds of the church building. And I can't tell you exactly why, but I really enjoyed the act of giving soup and bread away. I found it a lot easier than walking up to someone and talking about Jesus. I found it easier to share something tangible that brought meaning and, and warmth and sustenance to them. I was excited to feed others freely and openly, probably too excited. So much excitement came upon me that I offered everyone that passed by the bustling area of Pinelands soup and rolls. This is a Friday at five o'clock in the afternoon. It's in the central square, chock full of all kinds of people going this way and that. Some trying to catch a taxi to get home after a long week, others popping into the nearby spa and, and fast food outlets to, to get some dinner sorted for their families as well as the people that we were there for the for the in the first place the down and outs those that didn't have food or funds to buy food or maybe even a home to go to you see i was maybe too eager and too excited and i offered everyone and anyone who passed by soup and rolls and the reactions i received was as different and as contrasting as the people i've just described some graciously received and welcomed a warm meal even asking for seconds and thirds. And of course, we loved serving them, dishing out stacks of bread and rolls and continuous re refills of piping hot soup. In fact, 
We ran around Pinelands, finding recipients like these, craving to give those that wanted more. And they were staying on park benches, under bridges, on the curb next to McDonald's. We loved serving them something to eat. Why? Because they loved receiving a warm meal. However, there was another type of reaction. And if I'm to be completely honest, one that resembles would have resembled my own. A polite, no thank you. By no means was it rude or condescending, not at all. In fact, they were all quite polite, cheerful in their declines. I specifically remember the response of a presentable and well-mannered lady that was walking by as I exuberantly once again offered soup and rolls. It's a cold evening, nothing better than a warm soup, <laughs> like a, a salesman maybe. She politely replied, I'm on my way home now and I have my own warm meal, thank you. Unrelenting, I continued, have a soup as a starter now before you get home and then you can have your main course. And again, she peaceably declined the offer saying, I'm not so much, I'm not a soup person to be honest, thank you. Now, I finally accepted the resignation and I honestly declared as well, neither am I, have a safe trip home and a good evening. Now, let me please stress again how pleasant this lady was to talk to. Her smile, her demeanor was quite welcoming. In no way was she rude or unpleasant, but her words nonetheless grabbed my attention and haven't let go of me since. And I have stitched them to understanding the Beatitudes and Jesus' blessed and woe statements. I remembered his words and I felt like I had a lived experience of what he was saying. You see, on that cold evening in Pinelands, offering soup to a vast spectrum of people, I encountered the very same two heart categories that Jesus and Luke highlights. Those who were presently poor and hungry and in need of food, and those who had consolation in their own ability to provide and feed for themselves. Whether it was polite or whether it was rude, either way they rejected the offer of a bowl of soup. Now we can understand when Jesus calls those who are down and out, those that are in a ready state to receive him, he calls them blessed. They are in a privileged position because they have nothing else but to grab hold of Jesus and his invitation. Let me read to you what Tim Mackey says on the Beatitudes. He says, that is precisely those who are in the most difficult, desperate circumstances, who are the most open-minded and ready to receive help from someone who is totally outside of themselves, namely Jesus. It is often true that people who have less to lose are more open to Jesus. But people whom following Jesus will mean totally rethinking themselves, their career, their identity, their job, how they treat others, humbling themselves. Those that have everything to lose are more likely to ignore Jesus' call to follow him. Jesus highlights that it is precisely the poor and the insignificant that are the ones who first receive the offer as they are the most likely to respond. Now, I'm sure whether your eyebrows are raised or not, I'm sure you're all on board and you're all in agreement with what I'm saying. And maybe you're hearkening back, as I always say, to your own desperate past when Jesus reached out and touched you, inviting you to follow him. Our lives truly are test testimony to this truth of when we are most receptive to receive Jesus as the truth. But how does it apply to us now? 
disciples of Jesus, already co-laboring and journeying with him. Well, least we forget, whether the sermon was Matthew's Mount or Luke's on the plain, respectively, it is clear that it is directed to the disciples. You see, Luke 6.20 says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Matthew 5, the beginning of 1 to 2 says, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. He's directing it to the disciples. I believe Jesus doesn't just want us to understand this reality of receptivity, but to embrace it, and maybe even embody it. To continually weigh our own hearts, holding them against his challenging categories, and to see which we reflect. Tim Franklin, a Floridian pastor and friend to both dad and I, sums this up on his email signature. He says in the bottom of his mails, the kingdom of God is for the desperate. The secret is to stay in the place of desperation. Levi, as with the rest of the disciples, didn't just receive Christ once in a point of desperation at his tax booth. He went on to desperately receive and feast with him in his home. Leaving everything, Levi desperately followed Jesus' earthly journey. Jesus continually confused, shocked, and taught him along the way. Indeed, Levi did go on to fast and mourn Jesus' death on the cross, despondent and dejected. But soon he was feasting with him again after the, re after the resurrection. Levi walked the remainder of his time on earth, desperately following and sharing Christ. His life, his gospel account, which we read today, and his martyred death testify of his desperation to follow his rabbi, his messiah, and his lord. We can only embrace and maybe embody and share the measure of Christ's love we receive. That is the truth. Our hearts are in a ready state to receive and a Christ and to share him. Let me ask it in a question. Are our hearts in a ready state to receive and to share more of Christ? Do our hearts need to be shrunk and stretched appropriately? Are our hearts fibers in sync with his, with, with his? Are they flexible? Are they pliable with his kingdom ways? May we all take the appropriate steps to ensure our hearts are continually in a ready state to receive Christ's love and give it away. Spy our heads. Dear only Father, Lord, we thank you for, for who you are, Jesus. We thank you for coming to the earth and humbling yourself and walking on this earth that we may come into contact with you and that you use your authority and your power to journey towards those who had no, nothing else to hold on to. We thank you, Lord, that they were blessed and in a blessed position to receive and to be in a ready state to have you in their midst and to receive you appropriately may we learn from this principle may we continually assess our hearts against your scripture against your word and may we continually diligently tend the garden of our hearts ensuring that they are soft and pliable and flexible and in a ready state to receive your work continuously and your spirit that we may be used to share this love outwardly may we receive a greater measure of your love May we be in a ready state to receive more of that measure. 
and may we give it out just as you have done. Lord, we pray, Lord, that may you use us to do what you continually did in the kingdom way, Lord Jesus, by reaching and touching those who have no other hope but you. So we thank you for this time today. We thank you for all those represented in the spiritual family and the fellowships. And we pray that we may be a blessing to you and to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.